Uh, good morning. So we'll um, be opening up our Bibles and then we'll hop into the teaching in just a second. So uh, if you don't mind uh, opening up your Bibles or your Bible app, etc., there are some Bibles in the back. And the first passage we'll open up to is Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to go too far in your Bibles to get there, uh, but now it's going to get exciting. Dog ear that page. Uh, or put a bookmark there, and turn to John chapter 15 and 17. Put another bookmark there, and turn to Revelation chapter 21. So we will return to those passages in just a moment. Uh, the first thing I would like to do this morning is give an overview of the summer, uh, just very briefly. I want to start with just a brief word on the church. So anytime there's a transition or a shift from the norm, we were just talking about this this morning as we were praying over the gathering, um, a new season, uh, I believe there is value in coming back and pausing and asking, uh, why do we do what we do, uh, especially when it concerns us as the church? So we sit here this morning uh, starting a new season at River's Edge where the Decens will not be uh, a part of the day-to-day -day operations, which is a first time, uh, which is a first for River's Edge. Um, and the temptation, and this is funny that this came up in the, in the gathering this morning. Matthew didn't know I had this uh, kind of in my teaching notes. Um, but the temptation may be to view our time together like a student would view the classroom when the teacher is out and the substitute is in. Uh, and, and yes, and so, I was already going to make that analogy, and then in our prayer time this morning, uh, Matthew Crossgree turns to me and he goes, uh, did you get the lesson plan like for the, for the summer? And so, uh, so unlike a classroom, though, uh, this church is not the Decens, um, or any leaders for that matter. The local church is not its leader. The church is a body. Its leaders and teachers and givers and encouragers and elders and all its members are just that, they're members. They're parts, they're components of a whole with Christ as the head. So the community that gathers under the nonprofit status recognized by the state and the IRS as River's Edge, a Jesus church, is a body with many members and is it, it itself is part of the greater church the movement that has been forcefully advancing since the first century. The church that within uh, a century or two, when River's Edge is probably going to be no more, will still be alive and well. It's the church or the ecclesia, the called out ones, as scripture tells us, that when this earth passes away, will be more fully realized and very alive and very well. It's that church. That's the church that you are a member of and you, and you, and all of us. The local congregation, as created and sustained by the Holy Spirit, is local and it is personal. We personally and collectively live lives in the here and now, following our teacher and our master Jesus, in whom we live and move and have our being. And as members of the church, and as apprentices or followers of Jesus, we long for many good and perfect things, but we also long for these three goals in particular. One, to be with Jesus. Two, 
to be like Jesus, and three, to do what Jesus would do if he were us. This then brings us now back to our focus for today. And we'll come back and we'll start in the scriptures that you have bookmarked and dog-eared. So, going all the way back to the first bookmark you put in, Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Now, moving slightly to the right, in chapter 3, we pick up in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. Next, turn to the New Testament, John chapter 17. In verse 1, it reads this, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, I know we're in 17, right next door to 15, but don't lose your spot in 15. Uh, we'll, we'll turn back to that in just a second. First, turn to Revelation chapter 21. In verse 1, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay, to bring us home, go back to chapter 15 in John. This is the last time, I promise. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we recognize this morning that you, uh, you are the vine, you are the one that 
uh, we were meant to be with and dwell with, and we pray that you, by your Spirit, would dwell with us this morning, and that you would stir in our hearts things that we cannot do on our own. Uh, we thank you for your energy and your power that abides in us. Um, would you, uh, in your words, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you. Amen. The modern age is an age of revolution. Revolution motivated by insight into the appalling vastness of human suffering and need. Pleas for holiness and attacks on sin and Satan were for centuries served as the guide and the cure for the human situation. Today, such pleas have been replaced by a new agenda. On the communal level, that got loud really quick, sorry about that. On the communal level, political and social critiques yield recipes for revolutions meant to liberate humankind from its many bondages. And on the individual level, various self-fulfillment techniques promise personal revolutions, bringing freedom in an unfree world and passage into the good life. Such are the modern answers for humanity's woes. And against this background, a few voices have continued to emphasize that the cause of the distressed human condition, individual and social, and its only possible cure, is a spiritual one. But what these voices are saying is not clear. They point out that social and political revolutions have shown no tendency to transform the heart of darkness that lies deep in the chest of every human being. That is evidently true. And amid a flood of techniques for self-fulfillment, there is an epidemic of depression, suicide, personal emptiness, escapism through drugs, alcohol, cultic obsession, consumerism, and sex and violence, all combined with an inability to sustain deep and enduring personal relationships. So obviously, the problem is a spiritual one. And so must be the cure. But if the cure is spiritual, how does modern Christianity fit into the answer? Very poorly, it seems, for Christians are among those caught up in the sorrowful epidemic just referred to. And that fact is so prominent that modern thinking has come to view the Christian faith as powerless, even somehow archaic, at the very least irre irrelevant. Yet even though we believe that Christianity holds the only answer still, What then is keeping Christianity from being that guide to life, which it alone can be? Christianity can only succeed as the guide for current humanity if it does two things. One, take the need for human transformation seriously. And two, clarify and exemplify realistic methods of human transformation. The claim is that we can become like Christ in character and in power, by following him in his overall style of life that he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. That was written 35 years ago. That synopsis of the modern condition, especially here in the West, is as true, if not more so, now than it was then. Those patterns and the ache that we all feel as we nod our heads in agreement to the modern human condition, it has not decreased. If anything, it is more amplified. 
Increasingly, our souls and our societies ache for a cure, for the good life, for a way to live. Enter Jesus and his way. At the heart of the life in the kingdom of God is the call of Jesus to each and every one of us. And he says simply, follow me. It is intimate and it is relational and it is possible because he loved us and he gave himself for us. But it is a call into a way of life, into the way of Jesus. This was true for any disciple of any teacher or leader. You were called to first be with him, to be with your rabbi. You were called to learn to be like him. And then you were called to do what you saw him doing. In the first century, the language for this was your rabbi or your teacher had a yoke. They had a way that they saw the world, that they perceived that it was best to live. And as disciples or students or apprentices, you went and you spent time with him and, that you, and then you learned your rabbis or your teacher's yoke. Throughout church history, this way, this way of Jesus has been described in many ways. It's been described as the practices of the way. And I think that's kind of the language that we're using for this summer or the practices and the habits of Jesus or the lifestyle of Jesus or um, a little bit older language, the spiritual disciplines or the practices of spiritual formation. Now, if any of you are like me, uh, you may have one or two reactions to this language. Uh, one, your reaction may be, wait a second, I thought Paul told us it's by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. Doesn't this emphasis on practices and disciplines and habits lean a little too dangerously towards legalism? Isn't the work of transformation the work of the Spirit who lives inside of us? Or you may be on the other end going, yes, finally, thank you. Some practices, some things that I can do, maybe a little bit of a formula that's going to help transform me. I'll fit them into my bullet journal next to my other life hacks and my to-do list, things like that. Uh, I'm set. There's a part of me that likes that, kind of those components. So, um, so your, your reaction may be one of those two things. And if you're familiar with the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, then on the surface, there does appear to be a little bit of a conflict, right? Um, there's, uh, there seems to be maybe a conflict between the disciplines and the practices that we're talking about as we set it up alongside his immeasurable mercy and his grace that we also hold to be true. But I would argue that it's not a conflict, uh, but a harmonious paradox, one between what on one hand, God does in his mercy and his grace for us and in us and through us. And on the other hand, what simply will not be done for us, where we join him, where we seek him and where we collaborate with him. It's a kingdom paradox where the way of Jesus is wedded to the truth of Jesus that we may flourish in the life of Jesus. We will take the entire summer to unpack this and to unpack each practice and how each harmoniously opens us up to the heart of the Father and the inner work of the Holy Spirit. But today, we are going to begin with the mental framework before we introduce the practical framework next week. Or said another way, today our, today our emphasis is theory and next week we'll get into practice. Or said an even another way, today is the why Next week, we'll unpack the how, 
And all summer, we will be unpacking the what. So here, in the why behind the what, I want to ensure this morning that we do not miss the forest through the trees. That we begin with the first things first. And it is this. Our first and our ultimate aim is to be with him. In the goals previously given for apprenticeship to Jesus, so going back to the first slide that was up on the screen this morning, or actually, you could go to the next slide. The slide that was after... uh, Yeah, there you go. Yeah, sorry, I had made a duplicate side. The very intentionally, the first one listed is to be with Jesus. To be with God is the intent from the very beginning. It is what we read today in Genesis. It's knit into our image, into our likeness. We were created to be with God and to walk with God. And to be with God is the heart of the abundant life held out to us by the Father through the person of Jesus. Here are Jesus' words again from John 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And to be with God is our future. As we read in Revelation 21 this morning, quote, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he says, come to me. In John 15, which we read this morning, before we bear fruit, What does Jesus say we must do? We must abide. We must abide in him to make our home with him, to be with him. For whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Westminster Catechism states, quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or as St. Augustine states, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. If our goal is to be with him and like him and do what he would do, we cannot subvert the order. When discussing the well-ordered soul, John Ortberg gives a framework that I believe is helpful here. He describes the soul that is aligned with God as the soul that starts with acceptance and then moves to sustenance, on to significance, and then on to achievement. So, a word on each, acceptance, we recognize the grace and the mercy that we've talked about before. He's our atonement. He is our redemption, our salvation, and our reconciliation. And sustenance, he is our bread, as Jesus states, and we live because he lives. We live because it is no longer we who live, but Christ that lives in us. He sustains us. Significance. Because of this and because of him, our soul finds its worth. 
It's Genesis 1. It's his Imago Dei. It's his image on us and in us. Or Ephesians 1, our adoption. We are positioned in heavenly places, as Scripture would say. We find our worth, our significance. And from this, we do. We work. We bear fruit. The disordered soul inverts the order, and it starts with achievement, and it works backwards, hoping to find acceptance. It moves on from working to, by what I do, I hope I will be significant. I hope I will live my life in a way that sustains me for the years I am on the earth. And at the end of it all, if there's any sort of framework for God, I hope I'm accepted by God. Or, as many of us can relate to just on a daily mundane level, I hope I'm accepted by the people around me. This is the vicious cycle of works. But as disciples, we start with God. We start from grace. We begin as the branch who abides in the vine. And as we move on towards achievement, towards bearing fruit, this is the cycle of grace. So in conclusion, this is what we believe as Jesus' disciples. That one, he calls, he invites, and we are able to come to him because of what he has done on our behalf. In Jesus, we have acceptance. Two, we believe that we were made to be with him, that he is our goal, he is our end. We were made to run on God, so to speak, to find our sustenance in him. And three, he doesn't leave us alone. We are not alone. He sustains us and he enables us the way that a vine gives life to the branches to walk in the newness of life. In coming full circle, the practices of the way of Jesus are just ways that we ensure that we keep first things first. They are a way in a cluttered and a chaotic world, in an existence where we have the combatants of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we keep him at our center. Simultaneously, they open us up to him who sustains us and enables us. We partner and we collaborate with him who works so powerfully in us to follow him into his way, to be like him, to do what he would do, simply to bear fruit. Our practice for this week, uh, as this is, if, if last week was a little bit more of the soft opening, this is a little bit more of the defined opening, uh, where we take the why from this week that we've discussed this morning, and the goal is to combine it with the initial practice that Matt slightly introduced last week. Last week, we briefly touched on silence and solitude. It's simple, yet it's a profound practice with profound impact and increasingly difficult in our day and age of agendas and busyness and smartphones. And today's brief introduction does not even do the practice justice. But my encouragement to you is simple for this week. It's to abide. It's to be with Jesus. It's to take out your calendars, hopefully today, whether they're paper calendars or digital calendars, and schedule out a time or several times this week to get away with Jesus. In the words of our discussion last week, where is your desert? Where is your lonely place? 
that you can get away. Maybe it's taking components that you've already established as part of your week and making slight modifications. If you have time for de devotions in the morning or evening, maybe before jumping in and feeling like you have to do something, which I'm so guilty of, I'm, that's like my, again, this is, this is me more talking to myself than anything. But that is my default to like, okay, like I, all right, I got these boxes to check. I got to hop in and start doing things right away. For you and for me, maybe it's to pause and just sit in silence. Just you before God. Maybe for five minutes before you dive into reading and anything else that you might do as part of that time. If you have a commute, maybe it looks like taking some time to turn off the radio, to turn off the music, to turn off the podcast, and just be in your car without having to listen to anything or learn anything. If you always have that digital appendage called a smartphone always on your person, maybe it looks like choosing a time to turn it off if you don't do so already. It does turn off. I do promise that. Or maybe it looks like you waiting longer in the morning to turn it on. Maybe going a full day without it. Those are simply a few ideas. But the heart of them, the whole point is, can we start to turn our, our hearts and our mind's eye back to Jesus to be with him, to set aside time to abide with him? In the coming weeks, we will discuss the practices more fully. How do we pray? How do I read the scriptures? What is Sabbath? And is it necessary? What's the deal with fasting anyway? How do I create margin in my life, in my schedule? How do I decrease my internal and external noise? Those and many other things, but for now, three things as we consider in our time abiding with Jesus. One is what we already discussed, simply set aside time. Two, prayerfully consider is my daily aim, Jesus, to be with you, to enjoy you, and to rest in you? And then lastly, if not, Lord, what is getting in the way of that? To close, uh, let me read this passage over you. It's from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. He says this, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight as in the richest affair. Jesus then says to us, I am the bread. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever trusts in me will never be thirsty. Let's pray.